Hi, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of the Right Club podcast, our 250th. I'm Laurel Simmons, a co-founder of the Right Club, and before I introduce our guests, I want to thank everyone who has helped with the production of this podcast over the last few years. Our many co-hosts, our hundreds of guests, Catherine Nelson-Riley, our operations manager, Paul Copcut and his team who worked tirelessly to make sure the finished podcast gets out to you in top shape. But most of all, I want to thank all of you who listen. Without you, we wouldn't be here celebrating this amazing milestone. We are so very proud that this podcast is ranked in the top 1.5% of the over 3 million podcasts available globally. So to everyone, we say thank you. Before I introduce today's guests, just a quick reminder that knowledge and inspiration await you at therightclub.com. It's free to join us, and we'd love to see you there. Now, for today's episode, we thought we'd do something a little different for episode 250, so we invited three people to answer two questions. What was your worst real estate investing experience, and what was your best? We have Glenn Sutherland of glensutherland.com, Martin May of Maylee Properties, and James Canal of Mogul Realty Group. You can find their contact information in the show notes for this episode. So now, let's go gasp and laugh as we find out about their worst and best real estate investing experiences. Welcome to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping you, the real estate investor, advance to the next level. And now let's join this week's hosts and share ways for you to customize your life. Hey, Glenn, what has been your worst real estate investing experience? There's always stuff that never doesn't go quite to plan, especially if you're like me and you do a lot of projects. But the one that really came to my mind was a project that I bought a year and a half ago or something like that. I found the joint venture first because we were doing another project and it fell through. So then we had to find another project to do this, which is normally the opposite way as I usually do this. I usually find the project first. Anyway. We got this project. It was a duplex in Indianapolis, and it looked like a really good deal. The rents were really high. The price of the property was really low. It looked like a home run. So I proposed it to the joint venture. We didn't have enough money to pull this off as a cash deal, which I usually like to do, work in cash for the renovation. And what we came up with is instead of doing it as a cash deal, we were going to do it where we just buy it with financing right from the start. So we did an appraisal. The appraisal came in terrible. It was like a half of what we thought it would be. And the lender said they weren't even interested in lending on it because it came in that much lower than the underwriting and everything else. But we took the appraisal back to the seller, renegotiated the price. So anyway, we have barely enough money to pull this thing off in cash because we renegotiated the price right down to what the joint venture had. So we don't have any extra money. <clears throat> so we, cl we close on the property and also big mistake, we closed on the first of the month. So the tenants are saying, we paid the previous landlord and we're going, no, you're supposed to pay us. And we contact the previous landlord and they're saying, no, we never got any money. They're lying to you. So in Indiana, you can do an eviction right away without cause. So we evicted the tenants because they hadn't paid their rent. And they decided to trash the property on the way out. 
it already needed a whole bunch of repairs. It had some roof, not leaks, but damage. And uh, it just it was a lot of stuff that needed to be done. So they trashed it. And I mean, like drywall, spray paint. So I threw in some money. We found money. It was a tough go, but we basically didn't renovate it to the level we would have liked, right? We, we ended up squeezing by. We found out about six months later that the tenants actually did pay rent and the previous landlord lied to us. And so I get it why they were really pissed off. But for some reason, it went through the courts and it, the eviction went through somehow. Then we took it back to our contractor who was going to do gradual renovations, which also was the property manager. And then they saw the state of the property and they quit. They didn't want to deal with this renovation. We now had a property that was honestly not worth what we paid for it because it'd been trashed in, in the first week. So we, we hired a, a, a property manager based on a recommendation from somebody else. We hired the wrong property manager. Uh, it turned out that once the renovation was done, they never actually showed the building. They would do a pre-application and then they would just go, oh, there's a lockbox, go show yourself. And we were having a heck of a time renting it out even after the renovation. And we ended up having to fire them um, and hire another property manager. And the other property manager walked in on day one and goes, I know why this isn't renting because there is a wire hanging from the ceiling that the contractors never put away in the basement that looks terrifying. And in both units, like the, the electrical is all hanging low and it, it, it looks scary, right? And it looks like it's not done. And so you know, I'm like, how much to get it fixed? And it was $100 and they had a guy go and just tack everything up and put some stuff in boxes. But anyway, long story short, it was a nightmare. It shaved years off of my life. In the end, we didn't actually lose money, but we didn't make close to what we were expecting. We ended up selling the property once we got it stabilized because then it was attractive to buyers, but it wasn't even much of a profit. We've done, I don't know, 200 houses we've renovated. I've never lost money on any of them, but that one was really close. And it was really stressful and everything was falling apart. Wow. How long is that whole process from the moment you put the first offer into the time you sold it? Probably about a year. Took, okay. a, took a while, right? And I don't like those really long projects. I have a couple of those on the go, but honestly, it's, you know, market conditions. It's scary stuff. It really changes your numbers, right? I don't want to be exposed for that long. It's just one of those projects where you put your head down and you grit your teeth and you get through it, right? Yeah. And you chalk it up to experience. <laughs> yep. You're like, what can I learn from this? There's lots of stuff. There's hiring people properly. There's just a lot of the, the stuff, like double due diligence on the tenants, doing evictions, taking your sweet time because the blood pressure's come down and it's going to close for a month. Think, sit there and think about what could you actually learn from this? Because you have to have some sort of takeaway from this. And if you don't think about those things, then it was a waste of your time completely. Yeah. Oh, okay. Let's go on to what was the best experience you've ever had in real estate investing? So this is the best story, which is also a successful story. I just love this story. So we found this property oh, in Alabama. A bank had taken back this house. No one was living in the property and it was just sitting there. I found out that they was going to foreclosure and hired a, a real estate agent to help me with this because this was my first foreclosure. And so it comes back that the title isn't clear on it and it won't be clear. The issue is the property line goes through the garage. So if I want to do this as a flip, I can't really sell it because it's going to show up as an unclean title, which means that I can't sell it to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. So 
I first had to figure out what would it cost to fix this title issue before I want to go to the auction. If I tore the garage down, the demolition company said they could do it for about six grand. And I'm like, okay, that seems reasonable, but I don't want to tear this down. Okay, what would it cost to buy the land off the neighbors? So I call an attorney. They say, it'll probably be 10 grand for that little strip of land you need. And then I said, what happens if I move the garage into the backyard? And they say, in Alabama, you could probably get that done for $10,000. And I'm like, okay, I got $10,000 as my rough thing. So we go to bid on this and no one else wins it for $90,000. Okay, so we lost it. And then they come back and say, yep, they couldn't close. They needed financing and financing wouldn't finance this thing because it doesn't have a clear title. Another So they go to the second one. They can't close. Third one can't close. Fourth one can't close. They come to me and I go, I'll give you $50,000 for the property. And they go, are you insane? We have all these offers at 90. And I go, yeah, but I'm going to close cash. Long story short, with that whole situation with a bank, you're actually bidding against a computer. But anyway, I get the property. We close on the property. We start the renovations and we contact the neighbor to buy the land because that's the ideal situation is to buy the land, move it over. So go to the neighbor, well, I send over my property manager. <clears throat> they go to the neighbor and the neighbor goes, you know, say, can we um, buy the land? And they said, yeah, no problem. And I'm like, and I said, how about $4,000? And they said, sure, no problem. Lawyer drafts up all the agreements, sends it over. She signs it, comes back to the lawyer and they go, they're the husband and a wife that own this property. We need them both to sign. So send the property manager back over. Like, we need your husband to sign. And she's like, he left to get a pack of smokes about three years ago and we have not seen him and i was like great so we're in renovation mode we're like nearly done and we hire a private investigator and then the private investigator comes back and says well we found your guy <laughs> and he's in prison in tennessee um and i'm like perfect and we send over a notary to just say, hey, would you be interested in selling the property for $4,000? He says, no, I need at least $4,000 myself. And me and my wife, I don't want anything to do with her. So I want $4,000. She can have $4,000. So we redraw the documents, send it over to the prison. Uh, the notary's like, they released him. He's gone. Because what happens is with notaries and lawyers, they take two weeks to draw documents. And they, he got released in that time. So he went missing again, found him in another prison, and finally got the paperwork drawn. And we got the, everything good. We now have moved the line. We had the survey done. We had the title changed. We had everything cleaned up and we were good. But now we have a tenant in the property. So what we did was we refinanced and actually did a perfect burr where we pulled out every penny that we put into the property in the refinance. And then we sat there. The tenant stayed for one calendar year. And on the, the next calendar year, a property manager called me and said, do you want to do a renewal on this? And in Alabama, you can do a renewal. It's a contract state. So you have a one-year contract and you can do whatever you want at the end of the contract to set up a new contract. So I said, let's set up a no-lose situation. So we're like, we're going to give them a 20% rent raise. <laughs> and if they stay, it will be great for our numbers. And if they leave, we can sell the property. So they took the raise, but they did it on a shorter contract for four months or something like that. They moved, found something else, and then we sold the property. Anyway, so we, we bought the place for $50,000. We spent $27,000 on the renovation. And then we did our perfect burr in appraised for one twenty-five. And then when the tenant moved out, which was maybe getting closer to the two-year mark, we sold the property for one ninety. When we bought this property, we thought it'd be one twenty to one twenty-five. 
The 190, that's just appreciation. A lot of people will say, hey, that's, that was a killer deal. Appreciation is, in my opinion, a little bit of luck. There was no planning to that appreciation. The difference between the 125 and the 190 was just luck, right? There was pressure on that market. Everything expanded and grew just like it did in Ontario and everywhere over the last couple of years. But yeah, really, we bought a deal and stuff happened and it worked in our favor. But once again, it was a stressful situation, but not as because we had a tenant paying rent and it, it worked out to be quite a home run. And with that joint venture, we took that money and we bought four more houses, right? And so it turns into a snowball, right? Because now we can take those houses and take each of those houses and turn them into two houses. And before you know it, that joint venture has a business from their original 50,000 purchase and a 27 renovation. And now they've turned it into a whole pile of houses. So that was the big win for that wow. joint venture. Wow. That's a great story. When you were starting, I think, oh my goodness, this sounds like a horror story. A lot of times mine do start like that because I'm usually buying distressed real estate. Um, I'm buying stuff that the banks won't cover. I'm buying stuff that needs a raise, but there's a lot of potential to make a lot of money in those because you're taking on stuff a lot of people are scared of. Right. Okay. Well, that sounds good. <laughs> Thank you, Glenn. Really appreciate it. And hey, we're going to have you back for more stories, I think. It's always so much fun. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Today's podcast is brought to you by LegalSecondSuites.com. Ken Beckendam is an amazing real estate investor. He understands the process of the conversion inside and out. And he has built one of the largest by volume design build firms in the GTA that specializes in legal multifamily conversions, anywhere from two to 15 units. And he's been involved in either the designer or the contractor in well over 250 conversion projects, which resulted in over 600 legal dwelling units. That is a lot of legal dwelling units. And Ken and his team at Legal Second Suites, they cover everywhere from Halton, Niagara, Haldeman, Norfolk, Brant, Hamilton, London, Tri-Cities, Barrie, York, and anything in between. He's one of the few firms that can complete the entire process for you from design to construction to property management. So it's truly a one-stop shop. So reach out to Ken at LegalSecondSuites.com. Again, it is LegalSecondSuites.com. And now back to the show. Hi, Martin. Okay, here's your question. What's the worst real estate investing experience you've ever gone through? Yeah, no, I'll be very happy to share. And I hope this will act as a lesson for people who are out there trying to build their real estate empire. But the worst experience that I had, it actually happened recently, which is very interesting. So I, as you guys probably know, I, I used to have a wholesaling company. I used to do flips. And for the deals that we like, we simply hold on to them. So we had a long game and the short game. We're making money, you know, on the short time frame. So every single week, you know, we'll have a different project. We could dis dispose it very easily and make a quick buck, right? But when it comes to, you know, the long term, we're able to hold on to properties. We're able to continue building up our net worth. So we're, I would say, you know, before we're really well balanced in that sense. But over the past year and a half, we hadn't made a single dollar when it comes to, you know, active income. We were very much focused on building our self-storage portfolio. Um, and the only income that we could get is from charging a small acquisition fee or a management fee and obviously a passive income from our, from our portfolio. So that has created so much financial distress because every single month, it just feels like we're burning cash, right? Money is going out and we're not getting any money back in. So I think for anyone that's looking to build out their real estate empire, 
instead of just, you know, unless you have a, a W-2 or a T-4 income job, you, you have to worry about how to make that short-term cash, right? Either through wholesaling, flipping, coaching, or doing Airbnbs, anything that could really help you achieve, you know, a cash and a revenue on the shorter time frame instead of just focusing on the long. So, so that's actually single-handedly um, really create a lot of stress between me and my wife, right? The relationship that we have, it's not the same anymore. And it's really closed so many doors for us. Like there are so many opportunities that, that we usually jump on, but because we don't have the, the liquid liquidity as we did before, we're not able to jump on that. Uh, so I'll definitely say, you know, everyone that's listening, take this as a lesson to focus on, you know, long-term net worth, uh, but also at the same time, short-term revenue as well. And that's not that easy, is it? Because it's when you're focusing on something to build wealth, really long-term wealth, it's very hard to switch your focus to something that is shorter term. Yeah. So I've recently, you know, talked with a few of my partners, few of my friends who are more successful than me, you know, based in Vegas, based in San Francisco. And, you know, there's a thinking where millionaires own real estate, but billionaires own private equity and businesses, right? So we're looking at, you know, different businesses that we can get into um, that don't take a whole lot of time that, that we can start at least generating cash flow for us on an immediate basis. Uh, whereas, you know, real estate, that's really a wealth creation tool, but you still got to figure out a way to make money. Um, and I knew I didn't want to get into a W2 or a T4. I'm simply just someone that's too much of a wild card to be confined to one job and one responsibility. Um, so, so yeah, to achieve that, I, I would say, you know, wholesaling and flipping, I don't want to get back into those because those are very market dependent and I'm not a big fan of, you know, just how dependent on market cycles they are. You very much have to rely on, you know, it has to be a seller's market. It has to be a certain interest rate environment because you're catering to, you know, residential properties that are based on comps, you're banking on investors, not having access to deals. Right. So I, I see those being very volatile strategies compared to the self-storage, you know, being extremely recession resistant. So that's why I'm looking at, you know, other types of businesses that are, have very little correlation to real estate, but I still fit my long-term vision or who I am as a person uh, to be able to achieve some short trading. Okay, that's great. Now, question number two, what's the best experience you've had in real estate investing? The best experience that we had, it was, I will say, seizing the opportunity of going to New Brunswick as a market where, you know, I, where I learned to consume a lot of content, you know, it's through Right Club, through different podcasts, you know, Ontario, I mean, the U.S. And I realized most of these bigger players, the, you know, investor community, they're really concentrated in these primary markets. So I wanted to take what I learned from the primary market into a market like New Brunswick. And that concept completely worked. <laughs> so I was the only one applying these like, you know, essentially high value strategies, such as like, you know, direct mail, such as, you know, doing billboards. I was even on TV. I did a lot of TV commercials as well. And SEO, like if you Google like real estate in Moncton, very few realtors are even doing Google ads. So my pay-per-click, it was, I think it was somewhere around $1.50 to $2 versus the pay-per-click down in Florida. When I talked to some of my partners, they're paying $80 to $120 per click, right? So that experience, you know, just going after a market where there's less sophistication when it comes to investors has really served as well, right? So we really got to dominate that market because we applied 
you know, everything that we knew from bigger markets into the small market. So I absolutely love that. I would say play where you can win, you know, really use that blue ocean strategy. So avoid the competition, go into a market where you can absolutely dominate it. Cause like that was our experience and it was awesome. It was probably the best experience that we had, right? We will walk on the streets and people will recognize us for good reasons and for bad reasons as well. There's Reddit hate posts about us because we're coming from out of province. We're buying our properties. So obviously naturally there was a lot of hate. But at the same time, you know, business, the business community, they knew us right away. They were like, oh yeah, that's the, that's the Chinese couple. That's Martin and Lin. <laughs> so, you know, people knew us, people knew of us and we we're able to help out a lot of distressed families out of their distressed situations because we had that brand awareness. And that was simply because we we're the only serious player in that market. So when you're talking about going to a place like that, of a, an underserviced market, but a much smaller market. I mean, Montreal is a huge city. It's a big city. It's what, the second biggest city in the country. And so looking for these smaller communities, whether it's in Canada or the U.S., or wherever you are, really doesn't matter, takes a little bit of work, doesn't it? Like, how did you decide to get into New Brunswick? Because you could have gone to, I don't know, um, northern B.C., or the middle of Saskatchewan. I mean, there's many underserviced communities in this country. Yeah. I wish I could say I was just so smart that I figured it out. I really didn't. <laughs> no, it was pretty from a visit. I was visiting Lynn, my, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, and we were looking for a place for her to rent. Uh, that's literally how I, you know, we were looking for just a two bedroom apartment and we were seeing everything Moncton was going for 1200 to 1500. It honestly almost offended me. As a Montreal landlord, I was like, that's how much I can charge for my Montreal place. Well, who are they in Moncton to charge, you know, uh, prices like this? And then we soon realized that's the norm. That's how much rents were um, at the time in Moncton. So I will say it, it took personal experience, like firsthand experience to realize that, oh, wow, like housing is a real need here. And most of the housing inventory, they're really not in great shape, right? They're built differently. They're not renovated as nicely as the places we see in, in Ontario or Quebec. So I saw there's a market inefficiency there. I, I see that there's a huge opportunity to provide value to the local community um, and also add a reasonable price, right? At market price, if you just simply renovate it to the standards of what you and I were used to, you're already going to provide the best housing option in New Brunswick. And also the, the price per door, it's a lot lower. So you're able to achieve way better cash flow. So that's step number one was through like firsthand life experience on the other side of the spectrum realizing what the heck am I doing? I should never rent here, nor should I let other people rent here. I'm going to become a landlord here. But secondly, it's really confirming that through data, through research, and also through talking to other investors. So at the time, you know, I, I still remember that podcast episode. That's when Sarah Larby on the Right Club interviewed Jeff Marie from Tender Home for Rent. So I think that's when, you know, the Right Club, the community was already looking at New Brunswick back in 2020. And then I also, you know, talked to people like Mayu from Ontario. I, I essentially did a lot of research. Found out Moncton was actually one of the fastest growing communities in all of Canada because, you know, they had the province of full lockdown. So people, you know, people that were moving there are really trying to make, you know, drastic lifestyle changes, right? They're really trying to downsize in terms of their financial uh, budgeting. They're trying to get into a cheaper province. So they're uprooting their entire families to move to New Brunswick, where there are people that, um, you know, move there for school, right? They have the largest French-speaking university outside of Quebec. So you have people from Africa, people from France, people from Quebec that are going there 
And it's also got industrial, a very blue color, heavy workers, such as call center, such as these industrial workers that make up great tenant profiles. So I'll say first-hand experience backed by data, backed by talking with other investors. That's what really made me comfortable about packing up my entire lives into a car and move there. All right. Well, you know what? Another takeaway I've got from that is that when you're traveling and you doesn't matter where you are, just look around. Just keep your, you don't have to go there specifically to look at real estate. But as you're traveling, when you, don't just stay in the tourist areas, right? Go out and look around because that's what I do. Even when I'm in Europe, I look around. I go, oh, look at that. I see a lot of development there. I look at the skyline. Okay, all these cranes are going up. What's going on in this city? Maybe a small town. It may be a big town. You, you walk, you look for the for sale signs, you just walk around and you get a feel for what's going on. Then you do your research, right? I love that. And that's why these trips can be classified as business expenses. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, exactly. I, yeah, I feel like you and I, we should travel more because <laughs> that's exactly what like. <laughs> okay, thank you, Martin. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Are you looking to create generational wealth and get one step closer to financial freedom? then Better Mortgage Select is the mortgage brokerage for you. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or seasoned investor looking to grow your portfolio, Better Mortgage Select is here to help you achieve your financial goals. With over two decades of experience, our team of financial planning consultants have perfected our own unique system that tailors every step to suit your financial needs. For a free consultation, reach out to us today at info at bettermortgageselect.ca or give us a call at 905-569-8326. We're here to help you get started and prove why we're the top-ranked mortgage team in Canada. Hello, James. The question of the day for you. Actually, it's two questions. But the first question of the day is, what's the worst real estate investing experience you've ever had? Hey, guys. Well, I would say... It had to do with being a bit over leveraged when the market turned. So my worst real estate investing experience came in 2015 into 2016 when the Alberta market hit a bit of a roadblock. Back in those days, the price of oil plummeted. The rental market in Alberta went in a huge decline. And we were in a position where the market was really going up quickly, 2012, 13, 14. We were buying multifamily buildings, increasing the rents, refinancing, and then taking that, those refinance funds and reinvesting it into more buildings. So we were feeling pretty good because one building turned into two, turned into four, turned into eight, and we were making hundreds of thousands of dollars of gains in the portfolio on paper, which was terrific. And then all of a sudden the market slowed down and it felt like a bit of a game of musical chairs that stopped at the wrong time for us because... We had our primary mortgages with, you know, at that time, two, two and a half percent interest. And then we had a bunch of second mortgages at eight or 9% interest, which wasn't a problem because the rents were servicing that debt and it allowed us to acquire more property. But when the market stalled and the rents started going down, they went down very aggressively and they actually went down further than what we projected as our worst case scenario. So we ended up being in a position where we were getting hit with a bit of a double whammy because the value of the building is tied to the rent. So when the rent goes down, the value of the building goes down, which made it tricky for us to sell them to extract enough equity to pay off some of these second mortgages. So we ended up having to feed the buildings for a couple of years, which was no fun at all. And that was, that was a, a lesson in just being a little bit more 
cautious with and respectful of leverage. You know, it's always fun to think about buying buildings with no money down, other people's money, you know, vendor financing, all of these things. Those strategies were great when the market goes up, but the market doesn't always go up. And so we kind of got caught a little bit overextended. And here we are in 2023 and everything's worked itself out, but made for a pretty tough couple of years there. So, you know, my, my big takeaway is it seems like a good idea to take on leverage if you're 1000% sure the market's only going to go up, but, you know, leverage can hurt really badly in the other direction if the market declines for a little bit in the short term. And I think we're going to, you know, at the time of this recording in 2023 into 2024, we're going to see a lot of people getting caught with that too, because first mortgage interest is very high right now. And people coming for renewals who might have seconds, lines of credit, people who've used lines of credit on down payments where they're close to 100% financed. The cost of that financing has gotten way more expensive and the rents are catching up, but they haven't caught up yet. So, you know, this is a time where now my portfolio, I'm not overextended because of the lessons I learned back in 2014, 15, 16. And, you know, we're going to be able to ride out this interest rate environment. But that was, that was the toughest time in my career was just realizing that myself and my partners had to pour a ton of capital into those properties to keep them floating while we got through the, uh, the dip in rents. And I think probably one of the other things is too, that you, you don't know when it's going to end, right? Like, you know, that is, it's going to end eventually because these are all cycles. Things, rates go up, rates go down. And, and over time, things resolve. But when you're in it, you don't know when it's going to end. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nobody has a crystal ball. So it's, it makes the challenges and the pains a lot more difficult to, to keep your mindset positive during when, you know, it could be another year, it could be another four or five years. You know, you never know with certainty how long any given cycle is going to take. And even right now, you know, are the interest rates going to stay high for 12 more months or are they going to stay high for 48 more months? We'll see. Yeah, yeah. Well, if we did have crystal balls, we'd all be really wealthy, wouldn't we? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Oh, well. Okay. The second question then is, James, what is your best ever real estate investing experience? My best experience was when COVID first hit and everybody panicked and the world came to a freeze. Uh, I went on a bit of a buying spree. So in January, February, I was already looking at some properties and then March hit. Everybody thought the world was going to end and in March, April, May of 2020. We picked up a ton of properties at really deep discounts. So there was a, a short-term dip. There were builders holding on to inventory that they thought they were never going to sell. There were infill developers hold, completing properties with no buyers. And there was, it didn't last very long, but it was about a 60-day window where, you know, people were Lysol wiping their groceries and scared to leave the house. And, you know, that was a really good time to pick up some deals. So we took advantage of a market time where when everybody else is just scared to take action, we were willing to do it and got some really good properties that, you know, we bought them for about five to 10% less than they would have sold for three months before. And by the end of the year, they had almost retained their initial value. And then they kept growing into today's 2023 value. Where were those properties? Um, Cal in BC or Alberta? They were all in Alberta. Yeah, sprinkled around Edmonton. So our, our target was developers. We figured developers and builders were going to be a little bit more wary just because of the amount of inventory they'd have sitting. You know, it's easier to help someone empty the shelves of properties when they've got 100, 150, 200 properties 
versus, you know, one homeowner who might think, ah, you know what, I'll try again next year. But the developers who were just overloaded on inventory were the ones who were most willing to give out the best discount. Okay. So I guess really the moral of that story is, well, like anything else, if it's the stock market, you sell high and buy low, just the same as in real estate, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it pays to take action when people are scared or when people are in a state of inaction. I find when the most amount of people are in quote unquote, wait and see mode, that's a good time to buy. So even recently with the interest rates increasing, the interest rates increased and a huge chunk of the buyers in the market said, ah, we're going to wait and see. We're going to wait and see. We're going to wait and see. What were they waiting to see? The interest rates leveling off. Maybe the prices will go down. Maybe they won't. Who knows? And that whole wait and see mentality created a window of buying opportunity. So we actually purchased a couple of properties in Vancouver in December of 2022, because that was when the real heavy impact of the interest rate increases had pushed a lot of people into inaction. And again, there was a window that kind of was late November to early January where everybody just took a pause. And when there's no buyers on the market, sellers are willing to go the extra mile to entertain the few buyers that are left. So that's always been the moral of the story for me is when nobody else is buying, that's typically a good time to go looking around for a bit of a deal. Yeah, I like that. So the wait and see, when you observe that others are waiting and seeing, <laughs> exactly. it's when you actually do something. Yeah. And that happens every, you know, 12 to 24 months. Oh, U.S. election, wait and see. Interest rates going up, wait and see. You know, market this, market that, oil prices. There's always things that prompt people to wait and see for a minute. And in those, in those three to six month windows of uncertainty where most people are waiting and seeing, that's where we found a lot of our best opportunity. Okay. Great story. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And until next week, get out there and customize your life. Thanks for listening to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping all levels of real estate investors advance to the next level and help you customize your life. Be sure to tune in next week at rightclub.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you get a few seconds, please rate the podcast wherever you're listening. It helps the show get noticed by others like you. And we truly appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe.